Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, where we discuss practical science and not so common sense to live a life more extraordinary. In this episode, we talk about the controversial carnivore diet, a nutrient-dense elimination diet used to help demystify health issues caused by chronic inflammation and ways in which they harness this approach together with animal-based eating for long-term vibrant well-being. Let's get started. Here are your co-hosts who are also partners in life and business, Luke and Rachel. We're back and we're taking a little bit of a divergence from our sort of sequencing in the podcast and talking about something that's probably a little bit, actually it is, more controversial. (laughs) (laughs) And this topic was even one that almost became a deal breaker for us in a romantic capacity, which I'm sure we'll get to. As a disclaimer for this episode, it is the 16th of May, 2023. We're having this conversation based on the information that we have. There might be more information that comes to light as time progresses. We might be informed by someone about some new research as a result of this episode that actually helps us grow and learn and shift our our paradigms or thoughts around how we deconstruct our future path to vibrant well-being. But all we can say is for right now, this is what we've settled upon because from a N equals two perspective, so there's two of us, our experimentation, is we've found it's worked to help us find that path to vibrant well-being and also help many others across the world find some answers or to get a feel for, okay, this is this is how I can find that path to vibrant well-being a little bit faster or that they actually finally find it, to be honest. Yeah, and we're in no way rigid in our thoughts and we believe that this is the dogma. And we're continually evolving on this. And in the last four or five years that I've been doing this, my thoughts have evolved significantly and I have changed and removed and added things and just continually refining it because the thing with nutritional science, we often speak about it as we know so much. There is so much that we don't know and it's continually evolving. And if you can think that what we knew five years ago is still absolutely valid today without looking at any research, you're deluded, to be honest. Like You need to be looking at the latest research because it is evolving so quick and it is such a new area for us as we're trying to discover all these things. Yeah. So can we take a bit of a step back from a storyline perspective? When you were experiencing a whole bunch of foggy mind, pain, inflammation, all of the above, and we've spoken about this quite a lot in episode one and then dappling throughout the rest of the sort of series so far, but on that path to vibrant well-being, you came across some new information. What was the first time you came across this information so we can just introduce this concept gently? (laughs) Yeah, so I came across... This information, I, to be honest, I can't even remember where, which piece of information or what literature or what it was that first stemmed it. I started to see movements, right, and people talking about it, and it was so controversial. No way in hell is that going to work. And as a self-experimenter and somebody that doesn't like to be dogmatic, I have to be pragmatic, I have to try these things. So, first of all, I dove into it, trying to understand it better and understand why they were saying this and how to do it. And as I was exploring that, I was like, huh, okay, that's some massive claims. If it does 50% of what it's saying or even 10% of what it's saying, that would be 
phenomenal. So it's worth trying. And as I'm trying to be pragmatic, I'm going to lean into it and going to give it a go. So yeah, I set out to do a month of it and just to kind of really explore and see what's going on. It's, it's interesting as this has evolved as well. Because when I first did this four or five years ago, I just wouldn't tell anyone. I just did it, didn't tell anyone, didn't write any blogs, didn't speak about it, just kept it really quiet because I was, firstly, I was trying to figure it out for myself and I didn't want to talk about something that I was still learning about to, in the early days at least. Didn't have any real opinions. And just because it was also so controversial, because if I ever tried to tell somebody, they'd be like, what are you doing? Yeah, uh, you're not the healthy guy. You're not the yeah. guy to follow because yeah. you have no clue. Yeah, you're just deluded now. What are you doing? But in the last few years, it started to get a lot more accepted and I released it on the blog post and people are starting to come to us for help. And There's something here. There's something here and people are realising that something's not quite right with the nutrition system and people are slowly waking up, which is good. And this is the standard thing. I'm usually four to five years, or both of us, four to five years ahead of the curb on things, which is frustrating but exciting at the same time because we get to explore it all and help guide people on the journey. But yeah, so carnivore is what we're talking about today. So a all meat diet essentially. Nose to tail. Nose to tail. Yeah. Yeah. So meat, eggs and salt. Popularized by Dr. Paul Saladino specifically. Yes, yeah. yeah. So carnivore MD, Paul Saladino, that's kind of where we started, was starting with that. And that's not where we are now, but it's something that and we'll flesh this out as we go through. But that's what we're gonna be talking about today is the benefits. Um, and considerations yeah. for it. And essentially it's a nutrient-dense elimination diet. So I think that's usually how I start it because when I come to people or when I even when I say it's a carnivore-based diet or eating or nourishment regime, it's it flies in the face so much of that kind of balanced leafy greens, mm. lean protein, colourful plate, eat the rainbow... <laughs> Antioxidants, you know, soy, isoflavones, polyphenols. Look at these, and you know, look at these, all the antioxidants, etc. So it flies in the face of every single thing that we've ever been taught. And and meat gives you cancer, and uh, yeah, um, you know, and and stuffs you up, and yeah. you have issues with bowel motions and yeah. people, cardiovascular disease, and yeah, yeah. Name it, yeah. How I usually land it with people when it comes up, or somebody's having a lot of issues in their health, which we'll talk about very shortly is that the concept of utilising a high-nutrient-dense elimination diet is not new. That's often used by the medical system to help understand what could be triggering an immune response to a person who's experiencing a whole bunch of inflammation or issues that they have not simply been able to find out what is the undercurrent of it. So having this type of elimination, eating procedure, is not new. But what is a bit new is the idea that eating nose to tail meat or animal, which means literally everything in the animal, the brain, the testes, the heart, the liver, the, everything the ancestors did, that that itself is a high nutrient density way of eating. Yep. And we're not here to say that this is the be and end all diet as well. As we've said, this is all about the individual. It's about trying things and finding things that work for you. And as for most diets, the founded and the, for the, the diets that we generally talk about and the diets we generally use in clinic at least are more clinically valid. So it is 
for a clinical purpose oftentimes where things are going wrong. We need to investigate, we need to find what's going on. And the best way to do that is to remove as much as possible and then start to reintroduce and start to understand, okay, what is triggering the system? Because everyone is an individual. Obviously we can do that through clinical diagnostics as well, but there's no better way in my opinion as doing the elimination with clinical diagnostics, that two-prong approach really makes a significant difference. And yeah, so that's what we're talking about today is carnivore and then modifications of what we've learned over the last few years and how we apply it in our lives and what we find works for us as a, what we believe is a balanced diet and a diet that we thrive on. It's a, what I'd like to call it is more of an adaptive lifestyle choice. So it's a way to nourish your mind and body using patterns of eating that are clinically shown to be really powerful to help you investigate nutrition-based impact to your health. Yeah. Yeah. So can, I, can we get to the thing we like to talk about, which was the, almost the deal breaker for us? Yeah, because I think that lands it quite beautifully around you had that resistance. I had a significant resistance. <laughs> but then even I'm a skeptic. For the most part, until I see enough information to so convince I. me otherwise, yeah, and I know, exactly. I know you are too. And so, th this is a funny little tidbit on our relationship: is how this even came to light. So, did you want to share what actually happened there? Yeah. So, like I said, four to five years ago, I went down this exploration route, and how I've been doing it for the last four to five years is one month of the year I do complete carnivore, so meat, eggs, and salt, and you were looking at what I was eating and you're really confused by it. And I, I talked to you about the literature and I talked to you why I was doing it. And you understood from a intellectual standpoint, but when it came to actually seeing me doing it day in, day out, you're like, this is not healthy. So you literally came to me and you're like, if you continue eating like this, we're not, we're, we're over. Yes. <laughs> I was like, Whoa, that is a massive trigger right there. Well, because I mean, I, I've been interested in health and well-being for a really long time. Being a high-performance athlete like you are, is that you are taught from a relatively young age that to get performance, you must be able to feed yourself well. Now, when I look back on those years, I was completely doing the wrong things. But it, to the point of is that what we knew about nutrition back then is still just as mystified now, to be frank, until unless you start to think about some of this new information coming through or what we're talking about today. And so when I would see you cooking up your steak and having <sighs> eggs and salt and these just heart and all that kind of stuff, I was like, this does not look like health. And then the other thing I think that always got you, especially early in our relationship, is eating the fat on the meat. Oh, yeah. And me with all the, the dripping and just, you just... You would always discard it and or cut it away or for me I was just putting layering more on it. <laughs> I was just like, oh my gosh, this is a heart attack. Yeah. And a plate. Yeah. And that's been that has actually been one of the strangest experiences is starting to eat fat. Yeah. I don't know what happened so quickly, but it, it just a, a light switch went off in my in my mind. But I do remember me saying that to you and <laughs> horrible thing to say and we understood that it was based on prior trauma as well but also because you're this way of eating 100% flies in the face of everything that I had ever thought was a good nourishing way to eat and so 
I remember, uh, you know, us continuing, you continue to do that for, for that month. And I don't know how long it took for me to pick up the Carnival Code by Dr. Paul Saladino. No, so what happened after that was me just drip feeding information. Because obviously it was powerful for me and I got some great benefits, clarity of mind, just no hunger, just great satiety, just full of energy. It wasn't crashing, having the after, early afternoon crash. Like my cognitive function was just so much higher, which is post head injury, gave me that clarity of mind that just made me feel amazing. And this got nourished and yeah, all the information for me just drops away. And so you, you kind of saw those effects, I think, but then it was more about me just planting the literature and the information along the way and Oh, do you want to listen to a podcast today? Or, oh, that's uh, right. It was the podcast that did it first. Yeah, because you, you realised, like, the I was bringing podcasts where he was defining the literature and really pulling things out that I knew would speak to the scientist in you. And, <laughs> and biochemically, and then, it makes sense. And I also knew for you as well is the way to getting you to try something was skin. Yes. So I made sure the literature I was providing you was either around hormone health or skin. Um, you're, you're so clever. <laughs> because I know that's we've all got our own problems and those are your problems and I knew it would be extremely beneficial for you, but you had to come to that decision yourself. I couldn't force you to do it. I didn't want to force you to do it. And I, I think, and herein lies probably the power of this for anybody who's struggling with chronic illness that they've tried so hard with lots of different avenues to try to address and can't seem to find the answers. Assuming that they are generally healthy in other ways. So I, I want to say that before we even do the one month of carnivore, we often get tested. Like we just do lab tests to make sure everything's looking okay. So that there is an element of, hey, you do this safely, make sure you're not putting yourself at risk. But I think that's the way to kind of um, get to anybody's heart is if they've been struggling for so long with a recurrent and chronic illness, that is inflammation based. Then this autoimmune, is yeah. autoimmune-based. This can be such a powerful way to explore what is the systemic cause of these issues. This is where yeah, we started listening to podcasts and things like that. And I think we finally went to the audiobook yep. of the Carnival Code. Yep, because you started to request more information on yes. it. And, um, You're sitting there like benevolent yeah. Wizard of Oz saying, yes, she's fallen into my trap. <laughs> <laughs> and then before we knew it, because we generated this June-July kind of period, and so I'd done it, and then by the end of the year, you were like, let's go. Let's do it now. And yeah, like, I read the book. I looked at the biochemical pathways yeah. that it was all acting upon. I was looking at the actual literature and reading through those, and yeah. I was just like, there is something here. Yeah, I need to try it. And then I'm like, no. <laughs> it's a, for me, carnivore is something I like to do in winter because it's more ancestrally aligned, where in summertime, you have so much delicious fruit. And I just wanted to be able to enjoy that and don't have to worry about missing out on that window of time. And Which actually injects beautifully into an animal-based eating yeah. lifestyle plan, which is what we do now, yeah. jumping ahead but of we, the we, Yeah, we would do that at that but, point. Yeah. yeah, looking at the actual high nutrient-dense elimination hmm. type of program, June, July is our kind of window. Because for us, that's kind of mid-winter-ish um, and... You want to have hearty stews. Yeah, like, like it's, if you look at ancestrally, we that's the time where we went to famine, right? Because food wasn't available. So we would be going from feast to famine. There's a lot more fasting involved in winter because your caloric needs aren't as high. So yeah, that, that is why I like to do it in winter. Yeah, and so that 
that was quite a formative period for both of us, actually. More in so far as for me, it rocked my world and related to what nourishment looks like. Now, we'd already unpacked a whole bunch of other kind of micro trauma elements related to this, unpacked a whole bunch of my own inflammation things like starting gluten and dairy free, which has been really powerful for me. But actually looking at this way of eating once a year and then integrating a modified version of that remaining of the year has been actually a really powerful way that we've dialed the levers back or up for our health. Yeah, and I think the key thing to state here is the whole fat thing for you mm. was a gradual thing for you. You really Saturated resisted fat it. on the meat. Yeah, yeah it's like, oh, no, like, oh. you would kind of eat it. It's like, ah, oh. and you just internally, you'd think you didn't enjoy it. But now you absolutely love it. I don't understand what's happened. Like, yeah. I literally feel like my brain has broken or reformed. Because if you'd ever told me that I would be eating chicken skin or really chunky meat or pork belly, granted those chicken and the pork belly, that type of fat, we don't have very often. It's more grass-fed, organic beef. But if you told me four years ago that I would be enjoying all those things and somehow like my palate would be accepting it, I would be like, you are mad. Because I grew up with my mother cutting off all the meat and the chicken, all lean stuff, cutting away all the fat on the steaks. Oh, I just, I'm so upset thinking about how much I missed out now. But I, I, prior to that, it was almost like this mouthfeel could not simply tolerate that type of texture. But I don't know, now I'm like, it doesn't bother me. It's yum, and that's where a lot of the flavour is, and you can just, the... Yeah, the satiety on the tongue, I can't I'm explain it. Too, yeah. I cannot explain how that shifted what it felt like so quickly. Hmm. So, yeah, I think we've talked about this paradigm shift. We've talked about how there's a lot of like, misinformation out there or misguided or misunderstood information out there where we've been told that we need plants in our life for a healthy diet and Vegetables are amazing for us. But what, when, what is often not discussed is the anti-nutrients that are associated with plants. Because plants don't want to be eaten either, yeah. for the most part. Much like animals have mechanisms to protect themselves, such as claws or teeth or venom, plants have the same thing. They can't move. So what are they going to produce? Anti-nutrients. So they're going to produce nutrients that are toxic to the human body. You can think about it as a natural pesticide. And some animals are better at digesting it than we are because they have, they've been designed to eat them. Right? They've got rumens, they've got bacterial-assisted digestion. Yeah, so for us, we're ancestrally brought up on meat as a primary basis of our diet. Don't get me wrong, vegetables are part of our diet, but for the majority of our diet, if you look from an evolutionary perspective, we're brought up on meat, predominantly. Yeah. And, and we, we know that because of nitrogen assessment of tissues, fossilised yeah. tissues. Isotope studies, yeah. Exactly. So the amount of nitrogen and isotopic nitrogen in plants is quite low, whereas in meat it's quite high. And so looking at those old dating methods or assessment methods of nutritional componentry of our predecessors shows there's no way that they could have got that much nitrogen in their bones, in their construct, without having significant meat-based diets. Yeah, and that's something we're going to go into a bit more as well, is 
as with the anti-nutrients, so let's list some anti-nutrients so people can start to understand what they are. So that is your phytic acid, your oxalates, your lectins, your xenoestrogens. There's a whole host of these foods that are based with inside these vegetables or plant products. Oftentimes they're quite bitter. Yeah. Or as the animal starts to eat it, it's not palatable, so therefore they don't continue eating that plant. Yeah, exactly. And as in particular, you'll find it more in the seeds or the... Um, the growth-based The growth-based, the baby part of the plant, I guess, is the best way to put yeah, it. Yeah, the is. leaves, which are required for photosynthesis. Like, yeah. they don't have the right kind of leaves and stems. They can't get the energy to reproduce. Mm. And certainly they don't want their babies to be eaten, which is all the seeds. Yeah. Grant, we're going to... We're going to give a caveat shortly around the fruiting body that's slightly different but for the most part a plant does not want to be eaten it wants to survive and it wants to procreate yep yeah it wants to thrive just like us and so it produces all these anti-nutrients and you can effectively think of anti-nutrients as i mentioned as a natural pesticide so much like we put glyphosate on as a pesticide to protect to allow the plants to grow which again we're going to get into that as well because <laughs> That is extremely toxic and extremely bad for us, much like natural pesticides, which are like the ones I just mentioned. And these just strip the minerals away from you. You can effectively think of it as when you're having these foods is the restricting absorption, but also pulling away any of those minerals that, so your body can no longer absorb them. So for example, if you're having a nutrient dense meal like meat, which has like a lot of zinc and creatine and all these beautiful things that are so important for us, and then you have a handful of almonds alongside that. The phytic acid inside those almonds is just going to pretty much dull the impact of that meat. You're not going to get those minerals and those important key nutrients because of that phytic acid that is associated with it. And one thing we will get into later is it's not almonds are the enemy. And there are, there are ways in which we can still enjoy these foods and by denaturing these anti-nutrients for the most part, and I think this is something that's not often talked about too much, it's either complete elimination or it just indulge in them. So it's two ends of the spectrum where we like to sit somewhere in between because we love food. And this is, so we'll get into that point, but just want to put a caveat in there is we do believe and you can still enjoy these foods because almonds are delicious, but you just need to know how to prepare these things to enjoy them. And... Yeah, so just understanding that anti-nutrients are associated in these foods because they need to be protected. So you think you're having healthy food, <laughs> it's actually hurting you. And then, for example, in oxalates, is the accumulation of oxalic acid, which essentially produces kidney stones eventually if you keep having lots of it. So this is in particular in your leafy vegetables, so your kale, your spinach, which has just been idolized as a superfood. And you often find people that are having these green smoothies or, yeah, just having layers of spinach and kale, which I used to do. I'm not sitting on my high horse here. Like, I've been on both sides of the spectrum. I, every morning with breakfast, I used to have a dinner plate full of spinach because I was on a gut healing protocol and I had to have nine to 10 cups of spinach a day or leafy greens a day. So I had a thick bed of spinach with my breakfast, raw spinach as well, which we'll get into the importance <laughs> of knowing the difference between that. And I wondered why I had all these issues with inflammation and essentially I was just taking a big thing of oxalates, which for me with Elos Danos or EDS just did not support my joints and 
caused more pain, more inflammation than was needed. And I thought I was doing the right thing because I was healing my gut, I was giving it fiber, I was giving it all the great things. Polyphenols. Polyphenols, all the iron that's supposed to be associated with them. But, (laughs) hello, due to the anti-nutrients, none of that was being absorbed and it was just causing more toxins than good. Mm. And I never enjoyed it. You just thought you had to have it. I just thought I had to have it, so I did it. Yeah. Because that's what I was told. Yeah, and the funny or the frustrating part is even when we we might have someone who comes to us who's having a lot of issues with inflammation, autoimmune kind of indicators, or just a lot of weight gain, a lot of cauliflower brain, just can't think, all the way to having gout or something like that, which, you know, one of our friends is suffering from. We're helping them work through that. But the irony is when you finally actually get them to write down as a part of our tailored nourishment journal, which isn't just about what you're eating, it's how it's where are you eating, who with, how are you feeling, but the number of people that we say, oh, they have a salad for lunch, and for one, they're often not getting enough protein, just sheer protein to help them, their body, do what it's supposed to do, but the amount of oxalate, lectin, and phytic acid load that they're putting in their system, which are, is exacerbating inflammation, because we know that lectins, while there are many good ones, some will, for example, bind to glucosamine, which is a really important adjunct in the joints and so if it's binding glucosamine basically pulling it away from the joints it's making it harder for your joints to do what it's supposed to do without pain or without the right cushioning and so the the frustrating part is is once you start to realize actually we're eating a broth like through this beautiful salad that we're having we're actually eating a broth of inflammatory foods and we're not even talking about the glyphosates or the other actual man-made pesticides that are making additional (laughs) hormone or endocrine disruptive kind of um, modes in the body. We're just exacerbating everything. We wonder why autoimmune conditions are through the roof, even when layering upon the stress that we've talked about and a lack of sleep. It's just a mess and a, a cesspool of inflammation and deleterious attributes that are offsetting everybody's path to vibrant well-being. Yeah, and so that's that's going to the anti-nutrients and we can keep going to that and we will come back to when we talk about the ways in which you can still enjoy these foods, but at the end of the day, you need to minimize them. I'm not saying we'll remove them completely, like for a short term, I think they will be important and we'll get to that too. Mm. Uh, So yeah, as anti-nutrients, then the other things that are important to understand is the oils that are kind of planted into a lot of our foods and this is another benefit of this diet because it's animal based right throughout so you're not going to be putting any kind of sunflower oil on or mm. any sapphire um, rapeseed rape or so to be clear we're talking about vegetable based oils and seed and seed yeah seed oils that that's where you're concentrating some of the worst attributes of of fatty acids into your body. Yeah, so we have our omega-3 and we have our omega-6. You can think about your omega-3 as your kind of fish oil, that's your anti-inflammatory, that's the thing that's going to bring your inflammation levels down. So that's very rich in your kind of oily fish. So that's great for you because we've already discussed through all of our podcasts pretty much, inflammation is at an all-time high. And some seed oils like olive oil. So we're not saying that something would be exclusively omega-3 but it would have a higher proportion of omega-3s in yep. that oil. Yeah, and you'll find it's always about ratios. And then you have your omega-6, which is your high inflammatory. So 
it counters. <laughs> so low inflammatory, high inflammatory, and we want, and the issue stands is we need a ratio of the two. But the issue is we have way too much omega-6 that outweighs the omega-3. So we need to find that more balance. We need to remove as many omega-6s as possible because you'll find a lot of the good omega-3 sources will still have a balance of omega-6s in there as well. Uh, and you'll naturally get them through your diet regardless. But if you have an inflammatory condition or an autoimmune condition, if you've got high omega-6s, you are just putting gasoline on the fire. So we need to be reducing and removing as and much as possible. what's not often talked about omega-6s, because yes, it is a signaling chemical for inflammation, so it is important, like you mentioned. But what is not often talked about is how omega-6 influences cardiolipin, which is a type of enzyme that sits in the mitochondria that it helps the electron transport chain or the way in which our mitochondria, which is our energy production organelle in our, each of our cells, makes energy for our cells. So if you think about you've got a factory or, a, or a, some type of energy creation factory in your cells, and the way that it creates energy is it's almost like a trickle-down cascade of water. So it's almost like it's yeah. spinning turbines with this water, right? But in this case, it's with electrons. What happens with omega-6s is that it embeds itself into the cardiolipin structure and then changes the way that transports the electrons down the chain or the water down the waterfall. And so the irony is that if you have a lot of omega-6s, is that it's actually affecting the energy production of each of your cells. It's lowering its ability to create energy. So not only is it impacting inflammation communication, but it's also impacting energy creation. Yeah, so absolutely. that's an important part that often isn't talked about with omega-6s. Yeah. So the key thing with omega-6s is you'll find that they're often cheaper. So this is where we come into processed foods and just marketing in general really because it, for any kind of food it is cheaper to put like a cheap oil in than to get a extra virgin cold pressed oil because the easier the processing the cheaper the oil it's also the scale so if mm. we look at the total crop yeah. requirements of its traditional grain or seed based industries is there's way more of that than say olive Yep. So it's like when you think about the construct of all the vegetable processing or the actual seed extraction or what the byproducts of some of these crops are, it's cheaper to create some of these oils, vegetable oils, because it's a byproduct of them processing it. Yeah, because we know corn and grain industries, especially in America, are subsidised by the government to help make the population healthier, <laughs> which is very controversial. That's big food for you. So we need to be really conscious of what we're consuming and really reading the labels and this is the funniest thing, like whenever I tell people to start reading the labels and seeing what they're actually eating, they're appalled, absolutely appalled, because they look at it and then generally if the food that they love is like ingredient one sometimes, mostly two or three, is a vegetable oil. <laughs> this is where we talk about PUFAs, so yeah. polyunsaturated fatty acids, P-U-F-A, We've spoken about that in a prior episode, but the, the people that have the worst experience with vegetable oils or polyunsaturated fatty acids are the ones that have PUFA genetic implications. So we see that quite frequently, actually. We've got it, right? We've got it ourselves. And so 
our bodies genetically have instructions that create really squeaky mechanisms to actually process these types of oils. And so you've got, you've got some people who can tolerate it a lot more because their genetic pathways are nice and greasy. They're doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, excuse the pun around grease and oil here. But for those that have the genetic pathways that make that really hard for their body to process these types of fats, that's where something like the carnivore type diet or nourishment plan could be really pivotal in them understanding what impact that's having on their bodies. And if you do anything from this, say you don't even do carnivore or anything else we say, if there's one thing you take away from this podcast, remove poofers. Yeah, vegetable <laughs> so oil. Vegetable oils, so just... Seed oils. Removing that, and you'll quickly remove 80% of processed foods, and then you'll be forced to have good foods. It's probably one of the hardest things to do, but the, one of the most impactful things. And I've talked about this in previous podcasts. I believe poofers to be a lot, have a much more significant impact than sugar. And it's the combination of the two that is a recipe for disaster. Worry about poofers and minimize that as much as you can and just start reading labels, being curious. So if we're removing those oils, what do we have, right? So if we're talking from a carnival perspective here, lard, or beef dripping, or duck dripping, ghee. These are natural products that are beautiful oils that have a very high smoke point. So you can fry to some extent, again, frying has its own um, implications. implications, but for the most part, you can use it on a high smoke point and it's not gonna oxidize. Whereas if you use any of these seed oils, they're generally already oxidized, but as soon as you cook them, they're gonna oxidize and they're just, yeah, toxic for you. So you got your monosaturated um, fat, which is your olive oil, potentially avocado oil, I would stretch towards. And make sure they're in an amber but or this is what dark I was about to say. glass. Yeah. yeah, so amber, dark glass. Glass is important because we don't want the microplastics and it's also going to be more shelf stable and we're putting it in a dark cupboard <laughs> and ideally looking for something that has a batch date. When was it picked and when was it produced? But the key thing is it's not a poofer fat, right? And then there's the same thing as if you, like a coconut oil, obviously not in line with carnivore and it has its own kind of issues, but it's a better option than the kind of linoleic acid dominant oils. But if you overcook that, you're going to oxidize it and that's going to be just as dangerous. It's going to be, it's going to be denatured and oxidized. So that is toxic. If you're not sure about the poofers, Give it a Google, there's a big list. What we'll do is we'll put a variety of resources that we've found helpful through the show notes as well. Yeah. Just to be able to articulate that, like anything in life, there's no extremes. As we mentioned, there are natural products in the world that don't have just one thing. It's rare that they just have one ingredient of anything. Mm. There's usually a balance of this. So just like monounsaturated, polyunsaturated, saturated, there'll be a mix of that. Yeah. In some cases, there's it far more saturated, but might I add that every single cell in your body has a cell membrane and it requires saturated fat to exist. Yeah. So I just wanna help people understand that saturated fat has been so vilified as something that's terrible for our bodies. It is the large, largest leading indicator or cause of arterial you know, impact. And so it's, no, actually, let's look at the confounding elements to some of these research studies that didn't take into account other lifestyle factors that put people at high risk. I think what underpins the research that kind of pointed towards saturated fat being bad is this epidemiological studies. And if anyone understands study design, that is a 
It's not a causation. It's not a causation. It is a correlation, not a causation. So, so what does it actually mean? So epidemiological studies, define what that is. Okay, so that is a study where you're pretty much asking people questions. And we know from human nature, just look at any kind of, if you have a witness in a court case, their recollection of what actually happened is completely skewed. <laughs> we don't remember what has happened in previous, let alone what you've eaten for the last year. And oftentimes when we say what we've eaten for the last year, we actually put ourselves in a much better place than we probably have been. So that, that research was pulled from observational studies where people are providing post hoc assessment of what they've eaten and how they feel and it's generally speaking it is very like it i want to be clear here nutritional studies is extremely hard to do because of the nature of it it's extremely expensive to do mass population studies and the and best so much control and tight control yeah. over what people actually eat yeah and the best way to do big population studies is epidemiological studies but it is one piece of the puzzle it's the start of a study design process you do that to observe figure out trends and then you build upon that into kind of coming into randomized controlled studies where you can really control it mm. <laughs> and actually see what's going on and actually test the hypotheses that you've created from the epidemiological studies and yeah so essentially there was a whole host of studies that were t completely twisted and funded by big food companies that wanted to demonize meat yeah a lot of the research that was done is was poorly done and has been disproven yet the dogma is still there and this is where I come back to being pragmatic, looking at the research where it is, and understanding that this science is moving continuously. And yeah, so it's very clear that saturated fat is essential for us. Yes, there is, again, genetic differences. So there is something to be considered. So for those that have a kind of a lipid metabolism, kind of genetic modification, it's really important that they understand that because that saturated fat can have a negative impact on them. So they just need to be a bit more considerate of that. But for the most part, saturated fat is extremely healthy and is a great source of nutrients that most people are just avoiding for poor research. <laughs> and I mean, you look at the Inuit groups yeah. who have a large amount of lard, seal, flubber, that they've got a lot of it in their diets. And there's just some amazing research that's coming out around how their nutrient density across all vitamins and minerals is outstanding despite them eating a largely animal-based diet. And so I think there's a lot that flies in the face of, oh, you can't get this vitamin or iron or whatever from this part of the animal. But it's, if you're eating the whole animal, if you're eating the liver, uh, the kidneys, the heart, the brain, I think that's what's missed. That's the nuance that's often missed actually through message boards of people who are doing carnivore is that people literally say it's about steak, eggs and salt. Yeah, muscle like, meat. Yeah. No, that's not how this works. How much, how many times can we reiterate that? It's about nose to tail, whole animal. The organs are the thing that has been always treasured by tribes. So when a animal was killed, they would treasure that. In particular, like the liver and the heart and those really nutrient dense organs. And don't get me wrong, like, they, they're not enjoyable to... Well, at least we haven't found a way to love them. We, yeah, we don't love them, the texture. And again, this is something because ancestrally we've just moved away from it. Well, not ancestrally, so I suppose in culturally we've moved away from these 
nutrient-dense meats and, again, frowned upon them or... But Southeast Asia and China, oh, it's very prevalent. Yeah, because they love textures, right? Yeah. So Chinese love textured foods where they will really enjoy these foods where in Western culture, we've just moved so far away from it, it's all about the muscle meat. Yeah, and we'll talk about how we still get nose to tail, even yeah. though we don't love eating those types of organs. Yeah, exactly. So we don't just suffer through it necessarily. We do occasionally. We've got a bit of a hack here, yeah. so don't yeah. worry, those listening, yeah. there is a way to do this. Yeah. But yeah, so now I want to go into kind of sugar or sweeteners in general, because a carnivore diet is obviously a void of sugars or carbohydrates for the most part. Like, it's, like if there's carbohydrates, it's very minimal that you may find in there, but like it's marginal. So what we're essentially doing is in the carnivore diet is we're getting into a deep state of ketosis. So ketosis is using fat for fuel. So we're moving away from this carbohydrate dominance where we generally live in this 21st century living. If you're eating a Western diet, your primary energy source is coming through carbohydrate because that's easy fuel, it's what we call dirty fuel. We really wanna come into that ketogenic state or be able to go in and out of it. So using that fat for fuel, because you're essentially just tapping into your body's stores instead of having, because carbohydrate is a source that needs to be refueled every 90 minutes. You're going to tap out all your carbohydrate stores where with your fat fuels, that lasts you for days. So if you can train your body to use your fat for fuel, you can just thrive for longer and you don't need to continually refuel because your body is able to tap into its own natural sources. So obviously, Carnival is getting you into that deep ketogenic state, which is amazing. And then this is why there's a massive fuss around fasting and how important fasting is at the moment. Like everyone's talking about fasting, whether it's intermittent fasting or extended fasts and how important it is. And the benefit of going carnivore is it puts you pretty much into a nutrient-dense fast <laughs> mm. because you're going to be in a deep ketogenic state quite quickly because you're not going to you be void of carbohydrates so therefore you're going to be in this ketogenic state much like you would from a fast but you can go for longer because you're still eating and you're still satiated and takes away all that um i suppose challenge so that's why we love that month off is because it really puts us into this deep ketogenic state which is extremely productive state to be in if you've ever been in ketosis before it is a phenomenal state to be in where you've just got this mental clarity, this crispness of mind, this memory recollection and a word recollection. And yeah, you're just sharp, I think is the best way to put it, and just full of energy. I love the word crisp, actually. I've never heard you use that yeah. word crisp, but I think that nails it. Yeah, you're just crisp, you're just sharp, you're just really onto it. And yeah, so we love being in that state, and that's one thing that we love about this phase of where we go into that. So. Where was I going with this? Sugar, as I mentioned, is not as bad as it's been said to be. You know, like I'm, I'm, I was an advocate with saying sugar is horrendous for us. We need to be avoiding it as much as possible. Like I said, it's the conjoining of the sugar with the vegetable oils. For the most part, sucrose by itself, which is table sugar, has actually been shown not to be that bad for us. And obviously moderation. And generally speaking, when it's eaten by itself, not in adjoining with other carbohydrates, generally speaking, but it's, it's more the modified versions of sugar that we need to be worried about. Like we're talking about your sucralose, which is like a splendor. We're talking about aspartamine and these artificial sugars that give us the sweet taste. So our body's like, oh, I'm getting some sugar. Oh, this is going to be good. And then it doesn't get the sugar. It messes with our body and our body still begins to crave that sugar because it's getting that sweet taste and it's expecting it, but it doesn't get it. 
So that causes a whole bunch of hormonal issues and starts to begin to cause insulin resistance, which is where diabetes comes into it, um, you know, an inflammation-driven condition. And so we just need to be aware that sugar isn't the enemy, but it's not something we should rely on, and it's something that we want to minimize because <laughs> anything in excess is bad. I just, I'm not here to demonize sugar. If you were to pick one or the other, like I said before, it would be the poofers, kick poofers, keep a little bit of sugar, but don't rely on the sugar. And definitely don't do artificial sugars. But at, you can get away with it. Yeah, but at the end of the day, the key thing here is training your body to be metabolically flexible. And you can't do that with regular sugar in your diet. You need to go through periods without sugar where your body can learn to use that fat for fuel. Because if you continually stay in this cyclic state of just sugar on a daily basis, you're never going to allow that body to start to shift its fuel substrate from carbohydrate to fat. And I like how you call it the, a dirty, dirty sugar. Or, yeah. Because inherently our body is designed to conserve energy and just be, be as lazy as possible. Yeah. So it can conserve energy for when it needs it. And so it's always going to go for the lazy path. 100%, yeah. And the other reason why I call it dirty is because it's inflammation ridden, right? So it's going to come in with inflammation where if we're using fat for fuel, it doesn't have the inflammation associated with it as a cleaner fuel for our brain. Because it's effectively what we're trying to train is our body to use our fat for fuel across our blood-brain barrier. So that is when we're heading into that ketogenic state. And because the blood-brain barrier primarily works on glucose or carbohydrate until we train it to use ketones that also goes across the blood-brain barrier and that takes a time and it's not an easy thing to do and that takes two to three months to really train it obviously you can do that faster by doing extended fast you're going to get into a ketogenic state but to actually get that metabolic flexibility it takes a few months of training but yeah extended periods such as doing carnivore will definitely speed up that process but every individual is different so there's no one fits all approach for that but that is something we want to be training. We want to be metabolically flexible. That is health. Yeah. And if you're not metabolically flexible, if you're living from one meal to the next, you're not metabolically flexible. Metabolically flexible is somebody that can thrive without food. You should not be relying on your next meal. So you should be able to go a day without food and not be ravenous. Craving or hangry. Yeah. So at the end of the day is something we're training. And this is an undertone to this. And Obviously, I did a lot of that metabolic flexibility training and becoming fat adapted when I was an Ironman athlete. So there's benefits to that and the endurance potential as well. But I'm not going to talk about that too much here today. If you do want to, there is a plenty of blog post discussing how you can become fat adapted for performance and especially in particular in endurance, which there is endless benefits to that. And it's something I highly recommend if you're deep in the endurance space, you should be exploring that. You should be becoming metabolically flexible. I think we've probably spoke enough about the why. There's ample evidence or ways in which people can learn more about the why. If they're more deeply curious, then we recommend maybe you read The Carnival Code by Dr. Paul Saladino. And there's more and more research to suggest that these hypotheses are no longer just hypotheses. They're actually really valid fact-based situations around our nourishment and where we get the fuel and what actually impacts disease or dis-ease in the body we did talk about there are genetic caveats to all of this, which 
In the case of some people who have come to us that have significant autoimmune or historically a lot of autoimmune indicators, so they're not quite clinically autoimmune, but they're getting there, and they come across the carnivore diet, they try it for two to four weeks and they find their pain has just magically gone away. For the people who come to us and they're like, okay, I just need a bit of guidance because I'm not sure I'm getting the right support from the various social media platforms or, or whatever, the, oftentimes the first thing we do is do a genetic analysis. So, okay, for you, from a mid to long-term perspective, how do we manage something like this that helps improve your autoimmune symptoms but also ensures that you're not giving yourself higher indication of long-term issue. So we would be looking at a, a, an additional DNA, what, a specific DNA health panel, which would be looking at lipid metabolism, PUF metabolism specifically. So those will be quite key. And salt sensitivity is always and a good salt thing. sensitivity. Yeah. So there's, there's elements where we can navigate what carnivore-like eating might look like and how that's adapted to a long-term eating style. Because to be quite frank, as we've already spoken about, we love food. And to only be eating carnivore nose to tail full-time is not something that we are advocates for our lifestyle. And certainly there's a lot of situations in which that's not a favourable long-term nutrition plan either. Yeah, and this is something we, I think it's time to state now is over the, our evolution. And even Paul Saladino, who you mentioned before, who wrote The Carnival Code, he's since evolved into this way of thinking as well, where he found long-term he couldn't thrive without having carbohydrates in his life, much like us, because we're very active. We like to get out and do things. And you're going to get a whole bunch of electrolyte issues, a whole bunch of mitochondrial kind of issues if you don't support your system with some carbohydrates and you stay in that deep ketogenic state. That mm. can be extremely dangerous. And this is the key thing with our body is there's a mechanism as the yin and yang. There's always a contrast in our body that competes against each other. And we need to train it to be flexible, to be able to jump between the two and understand where that line is drawn and... So yes, what we, I think we'll go into eventually is what we're kind of doing now yeah. is that more kind of balanced approach. But before we get to that, I think we should just talk about what is the next step and then what, where the invitation lies going forward. So key thing is, like I said, every June to July, we do a month, a solid month where we're doing strict carnivore, where we're doing meat, eggs and salt. And the interesting caveat of the things that we've learned over that period of time, in particular, since I included you in it with me, is meat, eggs, and salt can work for a male. But for a cycling female, it's really important that we understand the cycle. So this is where we started to include more carbohydrates. In the form of honey. In the form of honey, yeah. yep. So yeah. honey is the one kind of substitute that we would generally throw in there. Mm. Uh, and that's the same for intermittent fasting as well. So yeah. if you're a female and you want a healthy hormonal cycle, which is like, why would, it's like, don't you want to breathe? Like, of yeah. course it's something you want. So important for women and their overall health to have a healthy cycle. Even if you're, you're postmenopausal, it doesn't matter. Our bodies uh, have got a symphony of hormones yeah. that are important. And so if, you've, if you're working with someone and they treat you like a male body and the fact that you can go through intermittent fasting or something like the carnivore diet or uh, you know ketogenic eating plan without any kind of carbohydrate full time, that should be a red flag. Yeah. And also I think the key thing is not just carbohydrate, but calorie count as well because in certain times of the month, you're gonna need more food. 
so it's not necessarily just about the carbohydrates, it's about the quantity as well and actually allowing yourself to eat. Because your body, the human body or anybody, barring some species, if you're, if you're in an environment that is not favorable to reproduce, your body will not want to reproduce. It will put into systems the, the survival mechanisms that say this is a bad idea to have a baby, we're in famine or there's issues here, it is not favorable to reproduce. Yep. And so being in, in kind of a high ketosis or an intermittent fasting state or not acknowledging that carbohydrate is one of the key identifiers of the human female human body to identify that it is safe and there's plentiful food. If you don't have those things at certain times of your cycle, then it will start to create a bit of dys dys dysphoria or a disruption to your normal ovulatory cycle. Yeah, so hence the addition of honey. And we'll get into why honey and um, as we go down into how we eat now and what we've learned since. But so that's generally what we do is meat, eggs, salt and honey if needed. And also that's it's also important for those that are training. So it's not just the females, but those that are doing any intense exercise. So if you're doing an intense exercise, you're going to need some carbohydrate into your carnivore as well. Otherwise, you're just going to feel like trash. <laughs> so understanding that carbohydrate is needed to help replenish your stores, unless you're trying to train that metabolic flexibility, um, it's still good to kind of bring a little bit in at some point in the day, um, just to kind of help replenish your daily stores at least. And avoid things like the ketogenic flu and things like that too. Yeah, and the ketogenic flu is not so much the carbohydrates, yeah. that is more the salts. So when you're going into carnivore or ketosis in general, like if you're just doing a keto diet, we see the keto flu continuously. It's extremely common and it is simply put, it is a, you're not getting enough salt. So you need to take a substantive amount of salt, a lot more than what you normally would. And particularly in that first week to two week kind of period and thereafter, because you need to keep replenishing your salt stores more than you normally would. But understanding that is really important. If you're starting to feel sick, get a teaspoon of salt, put it in some water and throw that back and start your day that way as well. Or, you know, using electrolytes, uh, so element or um, noon or whatever, whatever it is for you. Otherwise, just using salt, like mineral dense salt. And if you're doing something like the carnivore diet, you want to minimise as many exogenous or foreign materials yeah. as possible. In this case, microplastic free salt, if you can find it. The other electrolytes that you mentioned are lovely, but they've got other excipients or other ingredients in there that would potentially disrupt a, an elimination diet. Yeah, and like very minimal in the way of a keto, like they're not going to trigger too much. But yeah, for the extent of this, we want to try to remove as many things as possible and keep it as rigid as possible. And so yeah, that, that's a key thing to add. So really salt your meat but also add you know, a little bit of salt in your water to start the day because you're going to feel a lot better off. And understanding that in the first few weeks, you're going you're gonna to be in this, especially if you're not metabolically flexible already, there's going to be a transition phase. It's a squeaky phase where you're going to feel like, <laughs> yeah. you just feel like lethargic. And, oh, what's your belly might be a little bit bubbly, but yeah. that settles down after the first week. Yeah, so you just need to just accept that you're going to be a little bit lethargic, a little bit sluggish. But as that fuel substrate shifts, and again, depending on how metabolically flexible, depends how quickly it happens. So if you've been training that metabolic flexibility, you'll transition pretty quickly. You will probably have no issues and you'll probably be thriving from the start. 
But if you haven't trained that before, and this is the first time ever getting into a ketogenic state properly, it's going to be challenging. And there will be times and you really need to make sure you're having that salt in particular for you. But understand that you will be lethargic, but you will turn into mm. it in that, probably that two-week mark. And this is where the support, having a community where you can say, hey, this is how I'm feeling, am I yep. doing it right, is so important. And herein lies why we're bringing up this topic, which probably seems a little bit out of place in the sequence of our episodes, because we're about to start our four weeks of carnivore. And so this is an opportunity that if those are listening are really wanting to explore something a little bit different, that they're experiencing a whole bunch of kind of maladies or dis-ease that they can't seem to address under sort of normal circumstances, have some type of inflammation, joint pain, anything that just doesn't feel right in their body that they can't seem to resolve, this might be a really beautiful way to experiment with a community that can actually support you in that journey. Absolutely. What I love about it the most is how it removes you away from habitual eating patterns that are based, generally based around comfort or trauma sets or stress. Because you finally get this position where removed of your clutches or your comfort food, you have to actually just be okay with yourself. And you get the chance to sit back and observe that. That in itself is the most powerful thing I think out of the whole carnivore experience. Yes, you're going to have more energy. Yes, you're going to be sharper or crisper, as we talked about. But I think one of the things I love the most about it is it allows people to sit back and actually observe their nature around food and their relationship with food. Because too often we get stuck into these habitual patterns where we go to the fridge, we open it up, see what we can find, pick on something. It's probably something sweet in the mid early afternoon where you're crashing for energy, so you're on a hunt for energy and you grab a piece of chocolate or you grab something sweet, I don't know, a cookie or whatever it may be. And it's not until you can't have that food that you're like, huh, this is breaking the pattern. It's like, okay, that, why am I doing that? But it's not even the fact that you can't have it because yes, like any diet, yeah. you can't have it. But the point of this particular, the nuance to this is you're so sated, like you're full. Yeah. Like we've had to use my fitness pal or some other kind of macro calculator the first kind of three to five days to make sure we're getting enough calories. Because the irony of this, which surprised me, it blew my socks off, was that you've got this big plate of food, which is delicious. And you're like, you're three quarters through. And you're like, I am done. But when you run the calories, you're still in deficit. And I'm just like, okay, well, I guess we've got to shove this in somehow. Yeah. But you're so sated. You're so full that it really teases out the, you, you hit the 3.30 where you know you've got this habitual pattern and it's like, yeah, I'll just walk to the, the fridge. Or, and then you're like, oh my God, I'm still really full. What am I doing here? So what am I doing here? And I think <laughs> that's the nuance to it, which I think is powerful because yeah. it's just like, you're so satisfied. It's like, why am I still here hunting for something that I normally hunt for? Yeah, and then I think with the calories, because we also haven't mentioned that, and something I do want to mention is understanding stress in your life. And this is another reason why in which we choose to live an animal-based life is because we have a lot of stress in our lives. We're, like you mentioned, we're serial entrepreneurs. We've got a few, several companies. We've got kids. We're in a very busy period of our life where we're trying to reduce as much stress, external stresses as possible. This is a, it's a stress management strategy, mm. right? So we can perform at an optimal level. So that's one of the reasons why we eat animal-based. But also understanding your calorie count is extremely important. I don't believe in calories in versus calorie out. Like, Calories are important and critical, but 
you've got to look, there's so many more factors in there as well. It's not but, just a simple equation like yeah. many people will say it is. Yeah, it's not about that calorie balance. It is important, but the good thing is if you're eating carnivore or animal-based, the rest of that's sorted out. We don't have to worry about the hormonal impacts and that sort of things because that's squared away. But calories itself is important. So too often people go on this diet, don't track their calories, and because they're so satiated, they're just not getting enough food. And if you're somebody that is already in a stressed state, and then you're malnourishing yourself, you're getting yourself deeper into that stress state because your body's in a survival state as a calorie mal- deficit. As I said, a calorie deficit. Yeah. And again, you just you can go a couple hundred calories deficit to provide a little bit of weight loss benefit if that's what your goal is, and you're. You got the stress bandwidth to be able to do that. For us, we're not interested in losing weight. We're interested in maintaining weight, and if not, building muscle mass. So we're interested in maintaining our calories, and that is so hard to do. Mm, as you on mentioned, carnivore. on carnivore, yeah. a bit easier on animal-based, but carnivore it is extremely it hard to do. Surprised me, mm. and it wasn't until I was literally looking at the numbers on the My Fitness Pal app, I was just like, "There's no way that's true." Yeah. But triple checking, how much have we? What, what weight have we eaten? What is it? I was just like, I don't, and I remember saying to you over at Fongata when we did it, I was like, I don't know if I can fit any more in. Yeah. You're like, you just have to. And I'm just like, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I, remember, I remember just like getting the egg and just like putting it in my mouth. I'm like, oh my God, I'm just, I'm so done. But to, for me to even hit the calorie, I was just like, wow, I don't need anything else. And this is why fatty cuts of meat are important yeah. and adding dripping or lard or yeah. ghee into the mix because. So counter. Yeah, because you just won't hatch your calories otherwise. Like, I remember when I first did it, I had some fillet, and I was like, oh, so delicious. And then I put it into the calculator, and I was like, of course, there's no fat in it. Like, mm. I would have to eat <laughs> a ridiculous yeah. amount of fillets, even though it's the expensive cut. Yeah. It's got no fat. Oh, so, no, yeah. agreed. So go for your fatty cuts of meat. Yeah. And I think this is where you'd have a little bit of support coming in, mm. what to watch out for and how to do this right. Because we're not interested in putting your body in such tax that it puts yourself to over hormetic stress and then creates like an absolute negative impact in your life. And so keeping an eye on all of these kind of levers and the axes of your bodily management to ensure you're doing it for the reason that you started it and that you don't put yourself into the ground further is so critical. So obviously every year we do this nutrient dense elimination diet where we do pretty strict carnivore. But for the majority of our life, we live in an animal-based eating protocol. And don't get us wrong, we don't just eat animal-based, we enjoy food. But much like we've talked about with the 80-20 rule, 80% of the time we eat really well. We prioritize nutrient-dense foods that are generally animal-based. So that is your meat and fruit, pretty much. So we're really focusing on the fruiting body, because the fruiting body, and this is something that we're going to get into now, is... Fruiting body is designed to be eaten, it's on display. There's the reason it's colourful and bright. So we don't get our carbohydrates through grains. We don't get our carbohydrates through nuts and seeds. Don't get us wrong, we do have them, but we don't prioritise them. We prioritise our carbohydrates through fruit because that is a natural way of getting carbohydrates and that has all the nutrients that are associated with it instead of just having sucrose like table sugar by itself. Yes, we could have carbohydrates that way, but there's no nutrients in it Mm. besides sugar, which is why I don't understand it. So fruit is something that we stack on top of it. So we have nose to tail meat. So lots of organs and we enjoy our steaks and fatty cuts of meat in particular. Then we have lots of fruit 
and honey is generally our basis of our diet. And then we enjoy the food because we love going out. So we, one of our favorite things to do is go to CAFs in particular. Date morning. For date morning, so breakfast, lunch. And we also dabble a little bit of intermittent fasting because we love the kind of cyclic nature of carbohydrates. So carbohydrate cycling where we will be very low carb during the start of the day and then at the end of the day we kind of replenish our carbohydrate stores. But I think that's another thing in itself. So we'll kind of... The nuances. We're going to add the nuances later in the piece, I think. For now, we're just going to focus on animal-based and why we eat animal-based. And it's just ancestrally aligned and we've found it really works for us and i've always loved fruit i just love fruit and for me it's been a beautiful balance of my favorite things because meat and fruit like they're delicious they're designed for us to eat because they are delicious and great bioavailability but i want to again just double tap into the nose to tail part so we are busy entrepreneurs so we run a number of businesses while in my, in my perfect little world, I could just imagine us buying organic grass-fed beef heart or, you know, we, we were lucky enough to have livestock on our previous land. So we know it's grass-fed, we know they're healthy, we know that they were eating organic, we did not spray any of the grass. So we have three freezers full of this type of meat and various derivations of minced meat or sausages or whatever it might be. So we have the main meat, but we actually work with a local company called Homegrown Primal. We've actually interviewed her before, so feel free to go back and have a look at that interview. But they freeze dry the organs that we don't want to eat, much like Dr. Paul Saladino has his own brand of that too, I believe. Heart and Soil. Heart and Soil. I believe he does or used to get all of his... I believe he still does. Last I heard, I think he's still sourcing from New Zealand as New Zealand, well. New Zealand, yeah. So, I mean, New Zealand, classic grass-fed fed be- yep. beef. Uh, I say that with a caveat that glyphosate and other sprays get everywhere. You do your best you can, but New Zealand has quite a good history of that. But um, that's how we usually get our organ meat, is through dehydration of these types of beef processing. So that's how we get our liver and our heart and our kidney and bone and testicles and ovaries and all that kind of stuff. And I think the key thing with that is... It's not easily accessible because of Western culture, we don't generally have it. So first of all, like we talked about the taste and texture that we struggle with specifically, but there's also the availability of it. You don't go to the supermarket and see brain, let yeah. alone grass-fed brain. So, yeah. so it's really hard to find these sources and that's why it's good to have it in a supplement form. So if you can't access it, you've got it as that backup and it's really easy to consume and have on a regular basis, which is nice. So, yeah, that is how we choose to primarily have our organs. Oftentimes we will also, if we're getting something minced, we'll often mince it with the organs. There's another good way of getting it into the meat as well and less noticeable. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And I do want to mention in an ideal world that your fruit would be organic. So pesticide-free organic fruit because at the end of the day, you know, with the actual sprays that get on these this produce, you're trying to reduce your anti-nutrient and toxin load. And so that's in an ideal world, trying to find reputable, ideally local farmers that know what goes on their fruit and vegetables, that you can actually ask them about how they provide sustainable um, you know, treatment of their, their produce and their crop and supporting these people that you know have these these ethos that actually you can create fruit that may not look perfect, 
but they're ultimately the closest to pure that they can possibly be. Yeah. And then like for an example of glyphosate, so 95% of the soy comes from the US and the US is well known for using glyphosate because it's cheap, right? Like again, it's all about cost and serving the masses and it works from the outside in besides what it's doing to your endocrine system. So your it is hormone just, system. Yeah, yeah, hormone system. So it is just disrupting your hormonal system significantly and it is triggering these kind of estrogens, essentially. So we're very estrogen dominant. And what that means for women, breast cancer, for men becoming infertile, is there's these whole things. And then you can look to other spaces where, like phytic acid, for example, Mr. Kellogg's, I don't know how much you know about him. I don't, I don't know whether we've talked about this before. Mr. Kellogg's is pretty much a religious leader that advocated for low testosterone because testosterone is a bad thing. So he was, he created Kellogg's cereal cornflakes with high phytic acid to reduce testosterone levels. Wow. Are yeah. you serious? Oh yeah, yeah. That's why cereal is a cereal for you because it's full of phytic acid to reduce your testosterone levels, which we know are essential. <laughs> and, and we wonder why, like obviously measuring testosterone levels is, is relatively new for the most part. But what we do know is since we've started measuring testosterone levels, it is plummeting. And there's most, for the most part, because of these high phytic acid foods, such as cereals, that are just destroying your testosterone And levels. hormones in the water because yeah. of women being on contraceptives and not being removed from the water that the men are drinking, then yeah. soy generally with estrogens. But okay. also I want to, like, and testosterone is not... It's not just for men as well. That is mm. important for females yes. too. So I just wanted to say that just before we move Absolutely. on. Absolutely. So I've been low on testosterone before and that was horrible. Like to not have a sex drive at all. There was a whole bunch of other things going on at the time. But after my, my first born, like that was a big contributor to just like, I don't have the get up and go, the zhuzh, mm. uh, the, the drive. And so testosterone for women does not only affect sex drive, but it's also that get up and go yeah, energy, motivation yeah. and things like that. And so I also want to raise that the reason when we talk about grass fed beef or natural eating animals here is because grains, as you mentioned, like soy, but other grains and, and type of things have been covered with glyphosates and other pesticides. And of course, most barn-raised barn chickens or pigs will be fed these grains, which of course are full of pesticides and the pesticides usually live in their fat. And so you want to make sure that you actually buy meats that are from reputable farmers, um, because at the end of the day, if they're feeding their animals, their livestock, grains, you're basically just concentrating the pesticides into the meat that you're eating. Both industrial pesticides, like glyphosate, as you mentioned, but also natural pesticides as well. That's so true. the phytic acids, the lectins, the oxalates. Yeah. So it's also important to understand that it's not just the industrial pesticides, but it's those natural pesticides that are embedded in there as well. And that's why you mentioned earlier, the chickens and the pigs is something we try to minimize as much as possible and make sure we're getting from a really good source because it's really hard, especially in New Zealand, to find good sources of that. Yeah. And um, that's just because oftentimes these animals aren't being fed their natural foods because they're being fed some other type of food that makes them get bigger faster or yeah. hormone-laced foods. And so at the end of the day, like if chickens aren't grazing and eating on their normal bugs and worms and other bits and pieces, do not even get me started on the fact that if the land has been sprayed with pesticides, herbicide, whatever it might be, that's affecting the worms and the bugs. That's what they're eating too. So it's like, 
God, the, the life cycle of our entire food system is so impacted by these sprays and chemicals. And I just, oh gosh, you know, again, I'll say it again. In my dream world, I would have a liquid chromatography mass spectrometry system out in our garage. And I would be processing, yeah. spot checking our food, spot checking some of our, some of our excretion products to see like, what are we actually eating? Yeah, because when you look at the supermarket, you know, those chickens are massive. They are. <laughs> okay. I think it takes six months for a chicken to reach its maximum weight normally, but I think yeah. it's like six weeks in these industrialised oh, really? chicken farms. Wouldn't surprise me, because the, you see the stretch marks on the chicken meat itself. It's like, it's, we, we, these are not natural chickens. Mm. You don't, natural chickens okay. don't get that big. And yeah, so it's understanding if the food doesn't look natural, <laughs> it's not good for you. Chicken's not that big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, the the luxury of living in the Western world means we have so much available to us, but the machine is also so dangerous. And so it's just trying to find, it's trying to find the right sources of our produce. It's trying to be so radically empowered to ask why, to be curious, to experiment, to talk to your local produce. Yep. Um, I, I think the way that the world is in the Western world really sets us up for failure I on think, so many levels. And it's that trying to just get people to wake up. Yeah, I think that's one of the key things. And I, I'm glad that our kids got to grow up on a farm where they actually understood, okay, the meat comes from a cow. I think New Zealand, we're relatively in touch with that. But, you know, you see... Young kids in the US, they, I've, I've seen some videos where people are talking about where does bacon come from? And they'll be like, supermarket. <laughs> it's like, wow. Yeah. It's like, so removed from the. So, yeah, so we just need to get people pasture to plate, right? Mm. Understanding where it's coming from. The closer you can get to the root, the more you understand what you're having. So, really focusing on that good quality stuff. And like, there's some things that are unavoidable and you just need to understand what you're having and try to minimise as much as possible. So mm. prioritising the 80-20 principle. The interesting part about is the cost. Okay, so you say, well, you know, to eat this way would be super expensive. But I remember, I think it was Dr. Paul Saladino that said, I'd love to see a calculator that actually you are able to put in the actual nutrients of like vegetables or fruit or processed food or whatever and say like, okay, per dollar that I spend on mm. any of this produce, what does my dollar get me in nutrients? Bioly available nutrients, right, which is yeah, the key. Exactly. Because even, we talked about this, even with plant-based protein, you've got about a, I think it was a 30 to 40% tax on what can actually be absorbed by least, your body yeah, yeah. through the plant-based protein that you're eating. Whereas when you're getting closer to animal-based protein, that it is far more bioavailable. So for per dollar of kilogram or even per dollar of nutrient gram, mm. it's far more cost-effective. Yeah. Absolutely. So this is why we just need to be understanding that. And like again, if you've got the glyphosates or the phytic acids still in there, not denatured or removed, mm. it's just even more so. You're just not getting yeah. anything. Yeah. So there's a couple of things I'd love to wind down from here. The mm -hmm. first is obviously we explained what the carnivore diet is, how we use the carnivore diet to provide an annual reset of our system, and then how we take the things that we found working well to modify into an animal-based eating and nourishment program for the rest of the year, introducing yeah. certain whole food type adaptions that help us navigate a life by design and a life of performance and alertness. With animal-based, we've talked about enjoying the foods that are often 
rid with toxins that we or anti-nutrients that we're trying to avoid and we like to live a tailored life a life by design and we love food and we don't want to remove all food so there's that 20 percent where we like to enjoy ourselves there are people out there that are a lot more rigid and they're very focused on that real absolute performance but we we bleed that line a little bit because if life is not enjoyable I think that's going to have a bigger impact on lifespan or health span in particular. So there's that trade-off that we find. And for us, food is a love of ours and something we enjoy. So we want to be able to enjoy vegetables when we want them or certain meals or whatever it may be. So it's just about understanding how to prepare your food. And the, the truth is we knew all this. this. This knowledge has been lost. Oh, like long, long so, time and, and, ago. And, ancestral... ancestral um, preparation methods we used to prepare our foods in a way that denatured the phytic acids denatured the oxalates but yet we've forgotten that because it gets convenience it's quickness because these things often take longer so it is sprouting soaking boiling fermenting all these kind of ways are going to denature these anti-nutrients and going to help you enjoy the foods without the massive anti-nutrient load. Mm. Okay. So for example, so for me to have my healthy hormonal cycle, not only do we use honey, local raw honey, but we also love orange sweet potato, which theoretically is high in oxalates and lectins and phytic acids. But the way we prepare them is we parboil them because for the most part, the oxalates especially are water soluble. So we'll try to parboil them so we can try to extract out the water soluble anti-nutrients. We drain the water. Which is the key part. Because yeah. you know what, how number of times we might use, for example, you make a pumpkin soup, but then you use the water that's been in, which is like you're just creating a, an anti-nutrient bomb. bomb or a broth, anti-nutrient broth. But we drain the water and then we'll, we'll put an oil on them, some seasoning, and then roast it. So that's how we start to process some of our foods to still enjoy those tubers or root vegetables that might have higher anti-nutrients, but in a way that actually still re retains the joy of eating that, that, that yum food. And on top of that, there's a toxicity spectrum as well. So it's about, again, there's first thing we need to understand is there is a lot of anti-nutrients that we don't know. And oftentimes we talk about the kind of key ones that are well known, which is oxalates, phytic acids, the things we've talked about already. But there is a broad spectrum for the most part. But what we do know is there are some vegetables that sit better on the spectrum than others. So just understanding that there is a spectrum of food, and we'll put that in the show notes, a, what we generally use and what we'll have more of and less of as a result. Generally speaking, it's coming to the things we've talked about. It's those seeds, it's those nuts, it's the nightshades. leaves. Those nightshades. Those are the toxic. Moving more towards the kind of the root vegetables, because they're generally... They've got a protective mechanism where they're under the ground, right? Mm. <laughs> so so they, they're not easily accessible to be, um, you know, hunted, I guess, or, you know, that... The, the, Their leaves might have it, but the tubers may not. Yeah, as much. And then obviously then knowing the tools around how to denature those sort of things to help them be a more bioavailable and enjoyable. And yeah, so they're just got to understand these little nuances and the more you understand these nuances you can still enjoy the food and mm. have a great balanced life where yeah you just enjoy healthy food mm. and I suppose uh, the thing that really convinced me that first time round on our experience is within three weeks my skin 
had cleared up so dramatically, I could not even believe it. Like my pores appeared tighter, everything seemed clearer, my skin generally was like the texture was really just remarkable. And so within three weeks for me, I'd, granted I'd already been gluten and dairy free, I'd already done a whole bunch of stress management techniques. And so for me that first that, that three weeks, oh and then through my aura, within say, yeah. three days, my HRV just went through the roof, which is a good thing. It's like your body is finally finding a place to to de-stress itself. And so I remember that first month, I was just like, this is... And it stayed up too. It stayed up. Yeah. And so I, I think if, you're, if you've got tracking devices or you've got mechanisms or issues that you're seeing, I think within three to four weeks, if you're doing this type of eating style as a, again, nutrient-dense elimination eating plan, you'll probably start to see changes in, within that period of time. And on top of that, Tell me, tell me about your gut. What happened to your gut? Because I know that was a profound thing for you. Mm. So I had always hesitated or resisted high meats because I always had a really bubbly gut. And so I never kind of focused on high meats for that very reason. It so always you were always, like, honestly, as early in our relationship, and this is when I was going carnivore, she's like, I could never do that diet because... Meats make me gassy, get me bloated. I just they're heavy in my stomach. They do, and yeah. Just meat is just not possible for me. Like it, it just doesn't agree with me. Yeah, that's hundred percent. Yeah. And the first week on the carnival diet, I did feel super bubbly, but after that, my stomach had never been that settled and happy in my entire life. I, like, I just couldn't believe that I felt so good and I did not have those problems and I was not bloated and again getting through that first one week then starting to see some of my metrics go up and then the second week I was like wow I feel so stable my stomach feels so stable I was having no issues with passing stool they were smaller and less frequent but I had no issues with that it was still fine and then by week three I was just like wow I'm feeling like like a million bucks and my skin's feeling better and that fourth week, I was, <laughs> I was like, how do I do this longer but make it more sustainable for me? And so that's been the journey. Third year and now, I'm looking forward to kind of reassessing because every year I'm doing, I'm stacking on habits and things that are already improving my health. And so it's third year and I'm really interested to see with all the gains I've made in my own health journey, what will a third year be like and so this is going to be the exciting period of this yep. June to July what am I going to see absolutely yeah and I, I think because I think that piece there is so important that people understand because I get that so often the amount of people that say oh I can't eat meat it just mm. sits in my stomach like a rock doesn't work for me I can never do that diet you just <laughs> there's so many other issues you're just not addressing and that's the key thing there and the, just one note about the stool as well and how you said you have a smaller stool the reason you have a smaller stool is because you're having no fiber and fiber essentially what that does we've been told that it supports gut diversity and motility so movement through the gut that's actually not that that's been disproven there's pretty good evidence now to state that fiber actually impacts your diversity and also slows down your motility so you just got more you, mass yeah, and to that's exactly, that's it just, really what it just it produces is. mass so you therefore you think you're you have to go to the bathroom a bit more because you've got such a mass you have to push through where once you remove that fiber you don't have that mass so therefore you don't 
need to go as often, but your motility is just as good. But your body is also absorbing so much more. Yeah, exactly. So that's the key part is through through the eating plan, there's so much more bioavailability to the food that you're eating. Therefore, your body doesn't actually have to excrete as much. Yeah. And so, again, there's so many kind of layers upon layers of this that is so insightful. And so I suppose the key thing is if you're interested in this, feel free to to get it on Audible or buy the book, The Carnivore Code by Dr. Paul Saladino. Read the information. And keeping in mind, his thought process has evolved since that book too. Yes. So he's now more animal-based. So maybe update yourself with some of his newer content. On um, YouTube. On YouTube or like his yep. podcast, yeah. And then if you are interested in joining us and giving this a go, then you know, there is a link in the show notes. Feel free to sign up and we'll get you all in, on board in a little community group and we can support you through that, that journey. We can also ensure that you've got access to the right supplements, in this case, the nose to tail. If you don't want to introduce things like organ meat into your real live diet, you would rather have freeze-dried options. It is a supplement, right? So if you want to supplement your organ diet. Yeah, absolutely, that's what we're saying. So we've actually got a coupon code that we can share with you to save some money on that. And then the other thing I suppose I wanted to raise is that we understand that eating animal-based can be sometimes hard. The fact that we're animal-based and gluten-free and dairy-free yeah. means there are some really cool health benefits from that, but also can feel quite hard. And so we are going to be working on our own Tailored Life cookbook where it incorporates some of these, these methods, these modalities, these lessons learned and ways to guide you down the right path to eat with a lifestyle by design and a nourishment by design, being gluten, dairy-free and animal-based. Yeah, and just want to state here, just because we're gluten-free, dairy-free, obviously gluten won't be in the diet, generally speaking, because it's not there, very processed grain. And, but dairy mm -hmm. is something we haven't talked about because we, we don't have it, but others can enjoy it if they're not intolerant to it. So that's a part of an animal-based eating. It's part of animal-based eating. So grass-fed butter, you know, um, milk that is not pasteurised, you know, we're talking about like A2, really nice raw, raw milk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so don't worry, you can still enjoy your dairy, so something else to support that as well. So if this is something that you want to trial, then it may be something you go to your doctor and... I can tell you right now that they will resist this like the plague. Yeah. They will not understand why you're doing this. They will recommend against it. And again, this is a situation in which, barring that you've got any significant cardiovascular issues or other things that are going on, again, there's always a nuance to this, but barring that you're predominantly healthy in other avenues, but you're having some of these inflammation or other brain fog concerns, then you, know, you have every right to say, this is my health. I want to explore this in a safe way. I'm either going to do this with your support or without it, but I think it's going to be valuable to have your support. And the first thing I want to be able to do is do a checkpoint of my bloods, have a look at my lipids, have a look at my other hormone profiles, do a good, thorough lab check around what's going on. So you can at fasted least... Fasted lipid panel. Fasted lipid panel, because if you're doing it non-fasted, there's actually no point. We encourage you to empower yourself with this information so you've got a checkpoint and then you can make a decision, hey, is this the right thing for me? And then potentially have your doctor actually be open to exploring this because to be quite frank, this is a great opportunity for them to be able to learn more about a temporary type of way of eating that could provide really great insight for them for other patients that are doing it in a guided way. I think the key thing to state here as well is 
nothing against the medical professional doctors in particular, but they're only given about like four hours worth of training in nutrition. <laughs> so you can't expect them to know if this is right or wrong. And the majority of their ongoing professional training is by pharmaceutical reps that come in and buy them food and educate them about the latest warfarin replacement. Yeah, so keep in mind, get your doctor's approval, get, make sure they've got the oversight, but it's not their specialty. <laughs> I guess that probably wraps us up for today. There's obviously so much more we can go to because this is a very rabbit hole of a topic where we're really shifting some paradigms, but I guess it comes back to what is that one thing for you? Mm. So I, I think the biggest part here is that you have one body, it is yours. And you have every right to explore what it might look like to implement new ideas that do have validity to it, that do have a semblance of research-based validation to these thoughts. And from a short-term perspective, doing it safely, being pragmatic and trying something. That's, yeah, that's a great one. And kind of where I want to go to is whether you take nothing away from this, you're just like, just curious, which is great. Just to, if this is that first piece of information that is piercing the veil, that is awesome. Because hopefully it's just layering upon as you hear because you're going to hear about this more and more. Like it's starting to come into mass, like mass population is starting to talk about it a lot more. Well, I've seen the evolution over the years. So firstly, be curious, which I think is great. But if you're going to take nothing away from this podcast, like I said earlier, just remove poofers. Yeah. So those polyunsaturated fats, removing those from your diet. So vegetable oils. So vegetable oils. Seed the, oils. Yeah, the seed oils, those high omega-6 oils. That's going to get you 80% of the way there, mm. right? Like if we're talking about that one thing that's going to have a significant impact, if you remove that, that's going to have a profound impact and you're moving in the right direction. But I hope that you choose to be pragmatic and you choose to give something a go and get out of your comfort zone and explore what are the possibilities. In particular, if you're struggling with autoimmune conditions or inflammatory conditions and you just want to be feel better, free from pain, free from discomfort, join us for 30 days mm. or four weeks and see what happens. We've got a variety of like cheat sheets that can help make your life a little bit easier, ways in which you can give certain things or nudging to your loved ones if they're like, what are you doing? Yeah. Better yet, talking to your loved ones that might be in the same household about this to see if they're keen to join you as well. And we've learned a bunch from that ourselves. Yeah. Herein lies why we're kind of saying, look, if this is something you're interested in, well, sign up, let's do it together in a community that's supportive, but equally that we give you more information on how to actually adapt it back into normal life somewhat. Because we've done the whole thing where we've done four weeks of this beautiful elimination diet and then just jumped in with some of the fav favourite foods that we've had and that was to our detriment. <laughs> we learned our lesson pretty fast, which, you know, logically it totally makes sense. But, you know, you, you, love, you have your foods that you love and so it's one of these things that we know how to ease back in. We've been doing this for a number of years now and so this is how we can provide that guidance so you don't make the same mistakes. Yeah, because you're going to create a bit of carb sensitivity and you... Your gut microbiome is going to shift a little bit. It's not used to dealing with the carbohydrates, so we need to slowly just reintroduce those. So if you do want to kind of be part of this and create this little community with us, over the few years we've had a few people join us, and this year we're thinking about it, you know, going a bit wider and seeing how many people do want to join us for a, a good community. Got and some good how-to, um, you know, things to read. I think we're starting on the 12th of June. 
But we do want to get you signed up before that so you can get onto the kind of group chat and we mm. can get you all of the kind of what to buy the weekend prior so you can get started, you get your head wrapped around things, you get your family on board with Bridge the report. of the key things that don't need to be in there. Exactly. And so then you can kind of start fresh on the Monday. Also do meal prep as well, potentially yep. on the weekend. So... Um, that's the intention to start, but if you want to join us, then just make sure that by the date we've put in the show notes that you've signed up, and then we are more than happy to be able to bring you on the journey with us. Yeah, looking cool. forward to it. Awesome. See you there. Cool. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As our podcast progresses, we'll keep digging deeper into powerful themes of health and wellness, including client case studies and how we've used advanced science and not-so-common sense to help them live a life more extraordinary. If you feel this information has been helpful, please like, share, follow and subscribe to get notified of new episode drops and to support our mission to make the path to vibrant well-being less lonely and confusing.